Hello and welcome to the Patchwork Jukebox, a podcast where we use the songs and albums that matter to you to stitch together the story of your life. I'm Big Boy. And I'm Pinnell. And we're very excited to be here. So let's go. Welcome back to another episode of the Patchwork Jukebox. This is Big Boy and... This is Pinnell, as always. And we're always excited to do this. It's, a, it's an eye-opening experience every single time we do. Every time. We get to meet people in ways that we wouldn't normally, bumping up through Zoom or even in person. But the questions we ask always reveal some truths about the people that we're interviewing um, without them having to reveal any dirty, dark secrets. That's right. And so, it's just fun to talk about music and life with people. It so. really is. So, Pinelli, you want to introduce our guest today? Yeah, I'm super excited. The way this guest came about, um, he's been unbelievably kind and generous. But uh, a couple of weeks ago, I'm I'm uh, I'm staying up late. I couldn't sleep. I'm on Hulu. I'm trying to find something to watch, and I start watching a jo a documentary on Hulu. And and I see our guest on there. I'm like, wait a minute, I forgot. It, this whole vivid experience came back of going to the Mid-South Fair in Memphis, Tennessee around 1985 to see a show of a band that I had never heard of. And there's keyboards and smoke machines. And I thought it was one of the coolest things as a as a 14-year-old. And then just really loved everything that you said in the uh in the uh in the the film there on Hulu. And and so long story short, we have a incredibly uh accomplished uh, yes. legendary musician yes. um, keyboardist producer singer member of the gospel music hall of fame author kind of it sounds like an all-around renaissance man not only than eddie degarmo welcome today eddie, Hi, eddie thank you it's good to be with you guys but you know renaissance man is a kind description <laughs> I, my wife just says i never figured out what i wanted to do oh well there you go that could be it too so, yeah, yeah but as a profession you've done it well well, thank you, and uh, look forward to being with you guys. And as you mentioned, you know, you, you sent me a list of questions. Some I've not been asked quite certainly not as a group of questions like this before. So this will be an interesting time for me as well. Uh, you know, I've been in the music and around music pretty much my whole life. A lot of people would say, well, Eddie, how'd you, how'd you get in Christian music? Well, for me, it started at the dog track in 1964 when my dad won 1200 bucks in West Memphis, Arkansas. Been there We've many been there. times. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. And, and I think he felt guilty about it because he was also a deacon in our Baptist church. <laughs> so he, took me, he took me out the next day and he bought me a little combo keyboard and an amplifier. And so I started playing in dance bands at the age of nine. Whoa. Basically, because I was the only kid on the street that had a keyboard, you know. That's an and, incredible story. Yeah, and so that's how it started for me. Um, and, you know, I, I was in pop bands, rock bands, dance bands all through the 60s and the 70s. And then in 1972, the Lord saved me, and I had a very lightning bolt, life-changing experience and just started telling all my friends what had happened to me because I was so excited about it and found that some, you know, received the news pretty well, like my friend Dana Key, that we, we became together as partners in DeGarmo and Key. Yep. And other friends of ours just kind of just thought we were nuts, you know. <laughs> and I think we probably were a little crazy <laughs> at the time. I mean, it was 1972. Uh, we knew nothing about any kind of Christian music 
around the country or, sure. you know, that people made records of it or talked about it, or we thought we were on an island. We thought we were the only ones that were playing this kind of music. And frankly, in 1972, I think the only gospel music that I was familiar with was either Southern gospel groups, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I always thought they dressed cool and had shiny suits. <laughs> or, or, or uh, the old hymns in the church. Right. Mm -hmm. That was about all we knew. And so we just started writing songs that reflected our faith and started playing them in places, any place we could play, whether whether it was a bar, we figured out that didn't work too good. So <laughs> too much brought, conviction. Well, you know, people just don't go to a bar much to hear a, a rock band preaching from stage. <laughs> That's <laughs> <Right>. true. <laughs> we got th some stuff thrown at us and then we started trying to play in churches and we actually got some more stuff thrown. Oh, yeah. I can see that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, so it was an interesting time to get going, but uh, DNK lasted till 1994. And That's I, incredible. I left the group in 1994 and I had formed a record company with a friend mm -hmm. uh, called Forefront Records, which is still around. Very, and, very influential. Yeah, we, we had a good run at it and had some great artists that we were able to work with, like DC Talk and Audio Adrenaline and Rebecca St. James and Skillet and Jeff Moore in the Distance. And whoa, you know, I think you had Big Tent Revival, didn't you? Big Tent Revival, yeah, I used to love them. Yeah, Nothing Pax 217. I mean, Skillet was a Memphis group, that's know? right. Yeah, that's right. So, there was a lot of good music came out of Memphis. Um, so was with Forefront for, you know, its inception through most of the 90s. And then uh, we had sold that business to a big music conglomerate called EMI. Mm -hmm. For EMI and started running their music publishing. Oh, wow. And, and uh, it was right on the cusp of the modern worship movement. And I had a little group from England called Delirious that we were excited about. Oh, yeah. And so started with that and then, you know, was a part of uh, Chris Tomlin and signing Chris Tomlin and Matt Redman and, Whoa. you know, Hillsong United and just countless others that we were blessed to be able to work with. So I left the music business in 2014. Uh, my wife and I at that point had been married about 45 years and, she said, Eddie, it's really only 22 because you were gone the first half. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and then, so I decided that I would uh, leave the office and come home. And I've been pretty much home. And I did two or three cool things since I since I got out of, uh, you know, the day-to-day -day music business is uh, I went back to college and got my degree because oh, I, prom I promised my mother that I would do that. It took me, I think it was... 45 years to graduate college. Wow. Congratulations. So, almost set a record. And, <laughs> uh, then I, I wrote the book that you talked about, which is still out there, Rebel for God. It just tells a lot of this story that I'm telling, if anybody's interested. And, uh, uh, you know, I've just had a wonderful time being at home with my family. So it's been great. That's amazing. Um, I just remembered, it's funny that Brian had this story where he remembered seeing you guys in a show in the 80s. I just had a recollection of when I got to see you. It was actually at Disneyland, the first time I ever went to one of those Christian music festival things. Yeah, man, that's a, that was a big night. Yeah. yeah. Oh, was it the only time you guys played there? 
probably so. Uh, we played Knott's Berry Farm, Knott's yeah. Berry Farm two or three times, and Disneyland once. It was a wow, that's wild. Yeah, because that night I remember seeing you guys. And I think Petra may have been on the bill. I don't know, but I remember seeing Michael W. Smith for sure. That's right. He was but, on the bill. I mean, what a wild thing. It's so awesome to see you and to meet you and to hear your story. The bands that you just mentioned uh, from your record label, I mean, those those shaped our early 2000s. Those were bands that we listened to all and the time. And I worked in youth ministry at the time. Exactly. So that was a big deal. I was raising boys, and that was the music they got raised on. Awesome. Yeah. So yeah, the Disneyland show was a pretty meaningful one for me in that I hadn't been back there since I was twelve. Mm. I got to go when I was twelve, and we were from Memphis and going going to Disneyland in Anaheim. You know that was like mecca for theme parks, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and my cousin David, uh, who lived in San Francisco, was able to join us there. And uh, we had a wonderful day. It would have been 1966 or seven, something like that. And uh, he took me around Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco, which was really bizarre, you know, because I was 12 years old and I saw things that I, <laughs> mama, mama told me not to come, right? So, all things that I shouldn't have ever seen. That was at the peak of Haight-Ashbury. Uh -huh. Disneyland, I mean, the thing that was so bizarre about that day that I, I remember much later is they had this this band stage in a part of the park called Tomorrowland that came out of the ground. Mm -hmm. And the band that was playing was The Doors. No way. Whoa, that's and weird. Wow. And they were playing Light My Fire. Wow. And, uh, and I wasn't familiar with them, but I saw The Doors at Disneyland, which is kind of a weird juxtaposition. In yeah, itself. for sure. That so, is wild. And then the the other part of that sad memory about playing there when you were there in 85, maybe 86, mm -hmm. was is that my, unfortunately, my uh, cousin David, about two years after that, died from a drug overdose mm. in San Francisco at the age of 17. So, oh, wow. I'm yeah. sorry to hear that. Yeah. But what a memory. Wow. And what a memory that all, it's a small world, really. Yeah, what, I'm from San Diego. This guy's from Memphis. And here we are sharing Eddie DeGarmo's stories <laughs> from our youth. That is bizarre. <laughs> so you guys asked this question, what song makes you think most of your childhood? That's, that's an easy answer for me. And it's not, a, not even a song I liked that much, but it had a big <laughs> impact on me. It was, uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand by the Beatles. Oh, oh yeah. Wonderful. Because when that song came on the scene, there were a lot of, a lot of things around that in my life. You know, first time I had ever seen a band like that, obviously, on national TV, and it rocked my world on the Ed Sullivan show. And then the next thing was, as I was, my mother had started me on piano when I was three or four back in Detroit before we were in Memphis. And then she gave me to a, I call her a piano witch, but she gave me <laughs> a piano teacher when I was like in the, you know, second grade, first grade, something like that. And I, I mean, I wanted to play football and baseball. I didn't want to play piano. Sure. And so she was really smart in that she went out this piano teacher and bought me a Beatles songbook. Oh, nice. And so I got to learn the songs that were on the radio and they were popular. And that's got kind of what got me into it all. 
you know. Wow, and, what a hook. And I want to hold your hand was one of the big ones, you know, so. What a great story. Well, around the, maybe around the same time or maybe it came later. Can you remember what the first music purchase you ever bought for yourself was? I can. I can. It was an album by a group called The Safaris and mm. they had a song called Wipeout. Oh. And I saved my nickels and dimes and went and bought their album. Wipeout. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. Surf music. Had a drum solo in it. And I yeah. wanted to be a drummer so bad I couldn't take I couldn't help myself. <laughs> it was a big deal. You know, but that was the first first music purchase I ever made with money that I had saved up probably from you know collecting Coke bottles in those days. That was right. It was a big source of revenue back then for us. <laughs> so and that was on vinyl probably? Yeah, that would have been an album. Yeah. And uh, you know, we didn't have a record store out where we lived, but they sold records at the department stores. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. You no. Know, and so I, I went to a store in Memphis at the time called Lowenstein's. Oh, yeah. Crazy. That's so funny. Uh, well, here's a different kind of a question. What song makes you dance reg regardless of where you are or what you're doing? That's a bit of a private question, actually. <laughs> a lot of these are really. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and you know, there's a there was a group in the late '60s, early '70s called Sly and the Family Stone. Oh yeah. And anything that Sly and the Family Stone put out to me was just infectious from the first note. Amen. Mm -hmm. We had a song called "Dance to the Music." Mm -hmm. I heard it on the radio actually yesterday. Oh wow! It still made me dance. It still so, does, yeah. Yeah, me too. Yeah, just how badly I, watching uh, the documentary "Summer of Soul" last year and seeing what they were like live. Oh my gosh, it would have been an incredible show. Yeah. Well, they, you know, and I mean, Sly is just a mess as a person, but yeah. uh, hopefully, you find Jesus before you passes away. Maybe he hadn't already, but uh, their music was just awesome. Yeah. yeah incredibly good just it covered a lot of genres too i mean it, oh yeah I mean, for it sure was, it was epic. So, this question always interests me because all, part of the premise of this show is we believe music is the universal language so we try to talk to people not just musicians but from all walks of life and see how they've been, been impacted so it's always interesting to see how musicians answer this line of questions compared to others but eddie what song makes you cry mm. oh there's a movie that was about the 54th regiment from Massachusetts called glory. Oh yeah. And the theme from glory by James Horner. Wow. Every time I hear that song, it just makes me well up, you know? And, uh, so it's kind of an interesting twist, but that's just such a powerful story. The whole, oh, absolutely. Movie. And the theme, the theme from that movie. It's an instrumental. It doesn't have any words to it, but it just it tears me up every time I hear it. That's a great answer. Yeah, that's a wonderful answer. You're only the second person to give us a uh, a theme song from a movie that was instrumental for the song that made them cry. Wow. Yeah. yeah. But I get it. I totally get it. Oh, that's absolutely. Music. Well, this this question hopefully has no relevance to you whatsoever, except for your distant past. When you were a, a crazy young man. <laughs> so what is, yeah, what's your go-to breakup song? Well, I mean, to me, probably the 
the most iconic breakup song is Yesterday by the Beatles. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not half the man I used to be. You know. <laughs> he kind of puts himself down all the way through the song and talks about how much of a pig he was. So uh, that's a great one. But yeah, there's another one that I actually think puts a better spin on it that I like a lot. And that's, uh, it goes to the opposite of breakup. And that's Let's Stay Together by Al Green. Oh, man. Nice. Great. I, that's, your, I, that's your Memphis roots. I have some history with that song. You know, I, I got to play on one of Al's records when I was a 16-year-old kid. Play Whoa. And uh, uh, his producer, Willie Mitchell, mm -hmm. played Let's Stay Together for me and said, what do you think? And I said, it'll never go. So I didn't think it was a hit. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> but it was obviously I was wrong. Was that in was that at Stacks or where were you guys doing that? Uh, that would have been high right high. Okay. Yeah. There were highs around the corner from Stacks. Yep. yep. The whole stuff is like the same neighborhood, high and stacks and all that. So amazing girl that that just geeks me out being a music guy and a Memphis guy. So <laughs> that's amazing. Well, this this will be interesting too because you like you said you you've gone through many eras of music, many styles. But what album do you think you have listened to the most in your lifetime? That you know, pretty easy answer for me. Oh, really? When I was in high school, I had a hippie van, kind of a Scooby Doo van. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I played Hammond B three and had a Leslie, so I had to have something big enough to put it in, right? Sure. <laughs> Uh, I, my parents helped me, of course, and I had a job, but I bought a hippie band. You know? Nice. And I, I had what a lot of people don't know today, but I had a, a what they call an eight-track player. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in my hippie band. And I had little speakers that I had built and put on the wall and all that stuff. And an eight-track tape that I just wore out was Joe Cocker's first album. Oh, Wow with a little help from my friends there's your beatles connection too that's amazing yeah. and that record still you know it's got i shall be released by bob dylan on it it's got oh i don't know just some iconic moments and uh if if your fans have never seen the cocker performance on woodstock movie you know you ought to watch it because it's just undeniable the guy was he was a freak for sure but he was a rock star Oh yeah, that, that's one of the most iconic performances ever. I mean, really. And well, yeah. I, I remember my dad had a little Toyota that we drove around in um, with an eight-track recorder um, player, and it had it was it was he had an eight-track stuck in it. It was Gary Puckett and the Union Gap, oh, un un <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> and, and like, yeah, exactly. That's it. And I remember thinking, what a weird medium for music because you. You couldn't go to a specific point, you know. You had to go to whichever track it was, whichever section. What? But I remember eight tracks. They were like crazy. It was the first time we had portable music. You know, I have that my parents bought when I was a little boy. One of the original cassette players, but the cassette is like the size of a of a MacBook. Oh, you know? Wow, it's <laughs> a big thing. Yeah, yeah, it was like that big. It was really a reel to reel inside of a plastic box. You know? Uh huh. So. But that's I have I have one of that's those amazing. Machines. Wow, the A track was instrumental in my high school years because it was the first time that we could play our own music in our cars. That's amazing. You know, uh, yeah, that, that I it can relate to that. Just, yeah, that it wasn't just the radio. You know, 
Uh-huh. You could select what you listen to. That's exactly right. Well, that that's perfect lead into the next question because for me, when I finally got my own truck, I, I was hiding my own personal cassette tapes in the truck because it was the first time I could play my own music. <laughs> Had to hide them because they were guilty pleasures. A guilty being that I was breaking my parents' rules. <laughs> so, Eddie, what song is your biggest guilty pleasure? Well, you guys are going to be, you know, questioning my faith and salvation. And nope, all that. nope, nope. <laughs> because most most of these songs are out of the realm. I mean, I, you know, I was a part of Christian music for forty years, but still, some of my favorite songs are from the mainstream. Of course, love. And probably my biggest guilty pleasure when I just wanted to go nuts is I would crank it up. And I would play Cashmere by Led Zeppelin. Oh, heck yeah. Oh, man. That's a great but choice. It's a so, haunting song. One of the greatest lead-ins ever, I think, yeah. is the build-up to that song. Yeah. I agree, man. Just that song just like freaks me out every time I listen. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> me too. Like, you know, I, I try to count it one, two, three, four, and you just, it's impossible. <laughs> so, <laughs> Then I, I'm guilty with you if that's a guilty pleasure. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I had my most vivid uh, nightmare in college to that song. I woke Cash up beer. terrified. Yeah. <laughs> well, Led Zeppelin could do that. Yeah, they, they did. Could. Yeah. What a great song, though. Well, well, look, we 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 ordered these back to back on purpose and kind of switch you around here in the next couple of questions. But I mean, music does evoke all kinds of feelings and emotions. So we always like to ask people, what is the sexiest song you've ever heard? Mm. When a man loves a woman. Perfect. Oh, man oh. loves a woman by Percy Sledge. Oh, so good. Why didn't oh, yeah. Percy ever get bigger? I, well, it was big enough. <laughs> yeah, that, that song for sure. I mean, that, you know, that when, voice. When you, when you go home at night and your wife, you know, she don't want to talk to you. All you got to do is play that song. I promise, it's all over. It works. <laughs> can I quote you? <laughs> yes, you can. Eddie said it would work, babe. <laughs> Oh, here we go. I'd be very curious to this one. You seem like a very passive and, and friendly person. So I'm interested. What song do you go to, Eddie, when you need to work out anger? Oh, well, there's a couple of here. I mean, you know, you, you can get angry pretty easy listening to the Rolling Stones. Sure. So, you know, I'm street fighting man usually get me up and riled up, you know. And then, I mean undeniable to listen to some of the old southern rock stuff like leonard skinner and that sort of thing mm-hmm. uh, gosh they had so many songs that would get me feeling in a rage which is probably <laughs> not a good thing actually maybe not maybe not <laughs> but they were I, a fighting you know, band for sure yeah, i go with street fighting okay street fighting man good choice it's great i went on a weird kick last year where for like six months all i listened to was the stones i was like yeah was i remember like, that yeah, it was I was on a kick. So Street Fighting Man, that's, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and this one's kind of a, very similar. Um, when, when For some people, they interpret it you know, athletically. What do I want? Mm-hmm. Others, if I'm going to go out and play a show, but you know, I need to get pumped up. What song helps you? What do you play when you need to get pumped up? Well, I have a very vivid memory about these next couple songs because there's two elements in the medley. Okay. And, uh, when Dana and I and the band were shooting the cover for Commander Sozo, uh, my wife put these on the stereo and turned them on 10 in the photo studio to get us cranked up. Oh. It was waiting on the bus and Jesus just left Chicago by ZZ Top. 
Oh my gosh. Wow. Wow. So good. That's great. The the version of ZZ Top now, they just played our, our little town here recently. I didn't get to go. I was out of town. So but, yeah, that's I mean the bass players passed away now. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So I don't know who's covering, but they're still out there, road warriors. So those guys are like a hundred years old. Right? Yeah, it's unbelievable. Sounds unbelievable. like your wife, your wife has good taste in music too. Uh, <laughs> oh, this one. Oh man, I can't wait to ask you this. Every almost every single person in the industry has refused to answer this question, and I understand why, but we ask it anyway. So Eddie. In your opinion, what is the most overrated album of all time? Well, this, I mean, this one would definitely get some rocks thrown at me, but I just, I just can't go here, you know. Saturday <laughs> Night Fever by the Bee Gees. Oh, <laughs> oh that's, the, that's surprisingly a, the first person to say that. Definite answer. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, those guys are immensely talented. I'm not saying they're not, but that whole move into disco was just, oh, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not sure that I could ever go there. I mean, there were a couple moments that came out of it, but probably yeah, Saturday Night Fever because that record was. I mean, it was like the biggest seller in the world. It was. It was yeah. huge. Yeah. Yep. So, still gets radio play. Yeah, it does. <laughs> but I agree. They were, I, I, in my opinion, I I thought they were so much better before they went to the only falsetto disco sound. Well. Well, they, you know, and the, the original BG song, there's a really, really good documentary on HBO. Yes. But the BGs, if you're into that sort of thing, and, you know, they, they were wildly successful for a long period of time, but they had two or three different musical careers, yeah. musical bases, if you will. And their earlier stuff was sang by, uh, was it Andy, I guess, you know, uh, or Robin, I, I can't. Robin, that was it. Massachusetts and yeah. all that stuff. You know, I just got to get a message to you. And then, then their later stuff. You know, Barry found that really bizarre sounding falsetto that so many <laughs> people loved. I mean, I won't say that they didn't, but yeah, that whole that whole move Saturday Night Club Fifty Four and all that stuff that was to me not a high point in music. So. I, I can respect it. I can respect. Thank you. That's and I will. I'll go with you. I'll agree yeah. on that one. So I had. I've almost wanted to argue some of our guests, but that one. Yeah, I'm going to go with That's you. That's a pretty that overrated one. album. <laughs> so, Overplayed too. Well, what about this one then? Let's just move it the other way. In your opinion, what is objectively the best album ever made? Well, I mean, that's you know, that's a very very difficult question. For it's me. almost impossible. It's impossible, but. Uh, one that certainly had a huge impact in my life was was Abbey Road by the Beatles. And, you can't go uh, wrong. You know, um, listening to the songs like Something and Come Together and, you know, just that list of songs on that record. And I remember the day that it came out, my junior year of high school, uh, our band director played the whole album front, oh, eight, wow. front to back for our class. You know, wow! That was our class that day. It was a great day of school. Yeah, it was a great day. So, and, wow. and you're start to finish. There's not a weak link on that album. So, I mean, not really. That's a great one. It so, also has arguably another one of the most sexy songs I think ever. I want you is such a. It's a sexy song. Pretty sexy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah for it, sure. Yeah. 
So, so if Eddie's recommendation doesn't work, you can go to the Beatles. <laughs> I'll go to the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> and if both of them don't work, I'll go to yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Eddie. Oh, here's a very personal question. What song most defines you and why? Okay, I'm going to go into the Christian music realm here. Uh, I think the song that really describes me or describes at least the way I think of me, and sometimes that can be different than what's <laughs> actually me, is the song Jesus Freak by DC Talk. Oh, great answer. And, uh, well, you know, Jesus Freak was, when I first became a believer, Jesus Freak was a name that people called you. Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, believe it or not, it was kind of like the N-word. Mm -hmm. It was derogatory, I assume. It was derogatory. And Toby and the band reclaimed that to be a positive term in that song. And I still remember the first time I heard it and they were working on it in the studio and Toby played it for me. And uh, I just related to it and I was so grateful that he had redeemed that phrase to be something positive. So that song, I think, probably really describes who at least I, I wish I was. What a great answer. What Absolutely. A great, and I, iconic song, honestly. Too, it, so. it is. I remember I remember being shocked because that was when I was living in LA and being shocked that they were playing it on the radio. It was on Letterman. And it made me so happy. Like then not only did they reclaim it, but they, they made it a part of modern I culture. I did. Yeah. It was pretty awesome. Very cool. And I can see how it does describe you. You know, that's amazing. Well, the last question, um, some people, it's interesting because some people think, man, that's, that's a little morbid or cryptic or cryptic, you yeah. know, and I said, actually, I don't think so. I think to me, it's, it's about legacy, you know, and, and, and obviously you have a lot of avenues to answer this question being a musician, but, um, we always ask people this, like, who are you? And, and, and like, how would you share who you are and what mattered to you in your life? So when your life is over and we, all of our lives will be at some point on this earth. That the only way you can tell people your life story is to leave an album. What record is that going to be? That to me was a relatively easy mm -hmm. answer, actually, mm -hmm. you know, um, because it describes a period of my life and some personal challenges that I was facing. And I wrote a series of songs around it and recorded it as a solo effort in 1988 called feels good to be forgiven. Oh, wow. And that album front to back, I think really describes what I want my legacy to be. And, uh, I mean, that's, I told my wife, I said, if I pass away before you, that's what I want on my tombstone. Feels good to be forgiven. Basically, because anybody that reads it's going to say, what did he do? <laughs> <laughs> the mystery attached to it. <laughs> yeah. What's the story behind that? That's but, funny. Uh, that would be, that would be my legacy album for sure. That's fantastic. Did you self produce it? Uh, me and another fellow named Ron Griffin, uh, which also did some 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 of the DNK records with us. He produced the Pledge, which was mm. a big record. Yeah. For us, yeah, which came out about a year after "Feels Good to Be Forgiven." But uh, for me, in telling my personal story, I think "Feels Good" probably does it as well as anything I can think of. You know, there's another song and an album that I really relate to. 
that was put out by one of the writers that I worked with, a fellow named Matt Redman, called 10,000 Reasons. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then, uh, that song, uh, Bless the Lord, Bless the Lord, Oh My Soul, just really speaks to me. And so uh, I do think of that one, too. So I love it, man. Thank you for answering that. What a gift to be able to uh, have in your toolbox the ability to write music because you can answer this question personally like this what i want to leave behind my legacy album is something that i was able to actually write and leave behind a lot of us have to choose other people's art and that's fine too but what a neat gift that you could do that well that album was you know uh it came in a period where i had lost my dad my dad was my best buddy and uh so i wrote a series of songs about how i felt about that one called picking up the pieces and uh, you know, then I wrote some jubilation songs. Mm. So, because God brings us through those times, right? Mm -hmm. He always does. But mm -hmm. that's the one. That's the one I would leave behind. I said, if you listen to this record, you'll kind of know what this guy's all about. That's fantastic! Wow. Well, thanks for answering that. Thanks for taking your time and just being so gracious today. We really yeah, appreciate. it. Thank you so like, much. We're just. This is a, an honor, and and it's really cool. So, did you guys have to take off work to do this, or what's going on? We're both teachers. We're both teachers, so, so we have the week really? off. Yep. Yeah. So, Good for you. Now, what do you teach individually? I, high school. I, we're both in a high school, and I, I teach um, freshman success, life beyond high school as a college career counselor, and then financial literacy. That's so. awesome. And you? Um, I'm the technology director for our school district, and I also teach film studies, and I teach history and film, and I teach uh, movies as literature. You know, uh, our family is everybody but me are educators. My my wife taught college for her career and taught graphic arts and design and and our oldest daughter is is she's in the central office of a county here in Tennessee and she's over the middle schools of all the county. And but she came from a teaching background and then became a principal and then, you know, became in the central office part of it. And then our youngest daughter uh, runs an academy program and founded it actually that's oh, been, wow. been very successful a college prep program here in franklin oh wow a smaller school about 125 130 students that's um, awesome but yeah yeah so. it, it's been hotter than heck there i hear my aunt said it's been hot <laughs> it's been um, it's been weird hot you know <laughs> and today's nice actually the last couple of days have been okay but it's been unseasonably hot that's what but I heard. It it happens. We 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 haven't hit in in Franklin or Nashville. We haven't hit triple digits yet. But oh wow, some people around us have. Gotcha. Uh, yeah. But we've hit high nineties. But you know, June is usually one of our more pleasant months of the year. Right. So, I don't so, miss the uh, Tennessee humidity for sure. <laughs> it's been a little weird. It's been this hot. But hey, man, you know the weather's. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of like fashion. It comes and goes. <laughs> True. Perfect. All I can say. <laughs> yeah, we have no control over no, it. It's no, going to be no. what it's going to be. <laughs> man, thank you, man, so much. We really appreciate it. I was like so excited. So yeah, thank you so much. Well, nice to meet you guys, and you know, I nice talking with you. And you asked me some very unique questions. No kidding. I don't think a lot of those questions I've ever been asked before. Oh, well, thanks for taking the time to do it. And and as soon as we get it edited and mastered and everything. we'll send you a link to it mm -hmm. 
and and you can check it out and and we just really appreciate your time okay we'll we'll talk to you next time all right we'll see you when i'm next time we're in franklin all right (laughs) have a good one